This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. Australia's history is inextricably linked with the dispossession of First Nations people. But all around the country, traditional owners continue to fight for native title. Some are returning to care for country and using their land to enter industries from which they were once excluded. The Yaru people are from Gumaranganjal country near Broome in Western Australia. This is their story. The Yaru people of the West Kimberley have a philosophy of Mabulian, literally translated as good, strong spirit. It is a way of living well, with all the things that give meaning to their lives, country, people, community, and culture. Yaru woman Nini Mills, who is the chief executive of the Nyambaburu Yaru, Yaru's development and investment company, explains it better. Mabu means good in Yaru language, and Lian is a Yoro word used throughout the West Kimberley and it can be described in many ways. For Yoro people, it's your spirit, your intuition, your moral compass. Our broader vision is to create Mabulian for always, and we want Yoro people to have strong spirit and a strong sense of well-being. The stronger your connection to all of those facets, the stronger your spirit will be. And when your spirit is empowered... It enables you to move forward in the modern society that we live in today, being grounded in your cultural identity and values. In February this year, Yaru took over the pastoral operations at Roebuck Plain Station on Gumarang Anjal, near Broome. It's been a long story. In 2006, Yaru were granted native title over more than 530,000 hectares of their traditional country including the land and waters in and around Rubibi, the town of Broome. In 2014, the Indigenous Land and Sea Cooperation, ILSC, the federal organization set up to assist traditional owners in acquire and manage rights and interest in land, saltwater and freshwater country, bought Roebuck Plains Station and then managed both of them until Yaru were ready to take over the reins themselves, which officially happened earlier this year. Yaru now have the station... While the two organizations will work together to transfer operations to the export depot in the future, the station is located on rich marine floodplains 30 kilometers east of Broome, with a capacity to support 20,000 head of cattle. The business will support training and employment opportunities for young people on country. Mills says taking over the station means a new era for Yaru participation in the cattle and pastoral industries in the Kimberley which were built on the back of our old people's blood, sweat, and tears. She says, For us to now be in the position to take control of the station is a tribute to their legacy and their sacrifice. I think of the resilience that must have taken for them to hold that vision under their predicament at that point in time. It's phenomenal. The Yaru worldview means balancing those interests with important cultural and environmental values, such as teaching the young people and taking care of important natural and cultural sites, says Mills. Our approach is factoring in broader and sustainable opportunities for Yoro people, 
So yes, we'll be looking for people to work on the cattle station itself, but we have an indigenous protected area. And fundamental to protecting that is to ensure that we have Yoro people in positions there. Our old people have set a vision that we're committed to. So this new opportunity for us is to ensure that it's not just a job. The contribution is much more meaningful. Diane Appleby's father, Thomas Edgar, was an important figure in the history of Roebuck Plains Station, where he was known as the Windmill Man because of his cultural knowledge of the water of the plains and the surrounding hinterland. My father was a man of great learning, learning it from a country that was rich, and he gave that learning to others, so many of them. My grandfathers, my uncles and aunties, my grandmothers, all did the same thing, Appleby says. My mother said, when you teach, you teach with mabulion. You teach with good leon, good feeling. How do you expect people to learn if you are bitter? That's what she tells me. Very wise words, my mother. How do you expect people to respect you if you're going to be bitter? As part of the transfer of management of the station, NBY will buy 15,000 head of cattle from the ILSC. The return of the station makes Appleby think back to when the first Europeans arrived and the way they treated Yoro elders in their quest for grazing land. Appleby says, By the 1800s, Aboriginal women and men of Yoro descent, as well as the other neighbouring groups, came to work on Roebuck Plains. We still had our senior elders with us, telling us of these stories that are so significant, so strong. They never forgot the dreaming of these areas. They said, we need this country because the country is part of us. We've tilled this soil, we've worked on the soil, we've slept on this soil. The earth that has so much meaning to us. But we built those fences as well with our bare hands. The care for this country has always been in our heart to remain true to those things. She was asked to speak with the current cohort of young Yoro people in the traineeship program on the station. Going there and sitting and feeling and smelling the country gives me a sense of pride in what my old people did, of sharing everything to us and giving back to us. Because my mother said, don't ever hold back. Give it back so that we can continue the good stories, the good fight, the pride that we want to give back to our children. This news of Gumarangunjal, which is the country and the station, now back into Yoro possession, that is the most wonderful thing. That was The Good Fight, Roebuck Plains Station and its return to Indigenous owners by Lorena Allam. The reader was Shaka Cook. You can find photos of the Roebuck Plains Station and some of the Yaru traditional owners in the original article. We'll post it on our website. So much about the climate crisis can feel out of our control. Are Australia's emissions reduction targets high enough? Are energy operators prepared to shift away from fossil fuels quickly enough? Our next story is about an inventor who thinks Australia could become the first country where everyday people could solve these problems from the comfort of their own homes. It is late morning at the home of inventor, entrepreneur and CEO Saul Griffith in the coastal village of Austinmere, south of Sydney. 
and the scene is instantly familiar. Beach towels and children's shoes are strewn by the front door. Rogue socks and pieces of Lego line the stairwell. Breakfast dishes are stacked on the sink. All signs of a household still in the throes of making the lurching transition from the languor of summer holidays to the routines of school term time. Right down to the jar of negative rapid antigen COVID tests on the counter. Griffith and his wife Arwen apologise. In the morning hubbub, two children off to school, one starting high school, they momentarily forgot I was coming. The only clue that this is the home of one of this generation's most brilliant inventors, in 2007, Griffith, who has a master's in engineering from the University of Sydney and a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, known in the United States as a genius grant, is on the table tennis table, where what looks to be a skateboard hotted up with an electric motor sits partially assembled. I'm messing around. I have voided the warranty on a whole bunch of electronics on that table tennis table, Griffith confesses. It won't be legal anywhere in the world to use that skateboard. Nowadays, any physical tinkering Griffith does is more for therapy than anything else. Having founded numerous successful clean tech companies in the US, where he's lived for the past two decades and still supervising his office in San Francisco, overseeing a team of 50 people working on commercializing clean technology products, he's recently shifted the bulk of his professional life towards advocating another approach to the climate crisis. In 2020, Griffith co-founded a non-profit called Rewiring America, which, supported by extensive modelling and costing, advocates the mass electrification of homes. Petrol cars swapped for electric vehicles, EVs. Gas heaters replaced by reverse cycle air conditioners. Gas cooktops replaced by induction, with the electricity that powers these devices coming from either renewable sources or nuclear power. Griffith doesn't think Australia needs nuclear power. We have enough renewables. He says, The same is true in the US or in Australia. 40 to 42% of all our emissions in the domestic economy come from decisions that are made around the kitchen table, says Griffith. But you never hear that talked about in traditional climate action. You hear about boycotting oil or shutting down the coal station. But we have to decarbonize this demand side at the same rate that we decarbonize the supply side, or it doesn't add up. Now he's back living in Australia, returning primarily for ageing parents and quality of family life, he's seeing the arguments he started making in America making even more sense. With over 3 million homes already with rooftop solar, abundant sun and physical space to expand solar farms, he says Australia is uniquely placed to transform into a nation of fully electrified households that will ultimately be cheaper to run. 
Australia is the first country in the world where the positive household economics of solving climate change will be realisable by everyday people, he says. It's not a question of living with less, though. Rather, the answer is just to install so much of this shit that life gets better. Griffith believes a huge part of his task is reframing the narrative about decarbonisation in Australia, which has typically been discussed in terms of loss. Lost jobs, higher prices, poorer standards of living. Referencing comments made during the last election campaign by the Prime Minister Scott Morrison that an opposition proposal to introduce incentives for electric vehicles would end the weekend because EVs won't be able to tow a boat or a trailer, Griffith says, Full disclosure, I love muscle cars as much as the next guy. I want my ute to go on weekends too. One of the final things Griffith did before he left the US was buy a 1961 Lincoln Continental, driving it back to the West Coast on one last gas-guzzling road trip before it was electrified. Now, back in Australia, he and a mate have their eye on a GTS Monaro they're interested in electrifying and taking to next year's summer nats the annual festival of Revheads held in Canberra. The future can be great. That electric Monaro will be zero emissions, a shitload faster than a petrol Monaro, and guilt-free. And you don't drive your vintage Monaro every day, so it's going to be a great household backup battery as well. It's a grid asset. The technology has delivered, And there's no reason not to turn every culture war on its head and just say, no, you're going to get your electric cake and do burnouts too. Griffith grew up in southwestern Sydney. His mother, an artist who painted landscapes and flora and fauna. His father, a professor of textile engineering who loved fixing machines and building things. On holidays, the family camped in national parks and snorkelled on the Great Barrier Reef. There wasn't any religion in the house, other than Attenborough documentaries, Griffith has said of his childhood. The piece of the kid that is in me that is really strong is really the David Attenborough bit, which is, holy shit, we've got a lot to lose, he says now. We spent a lot of time on the reef and it's not the same anymore. It's terrible. It's terrifying. So I viscerally feel the climate change and I worry a lot about it and I worry hugely about it for our kids. Sitting in his leafy backyard with the rainforest of the Illawarra escarpment encroaching and the family blue gila persistently placing sticks before us, Griffith tells the funny version of how he shifted from CEO to advocate. Fifteen years ago, before I married Arwen, I said, if the world hasn't done anything sufficiently bold on climate action by 2020, I'm going to become an eco-terrorist because I have had the perfect training. I know how infrastructure works. I know how to build robots. I know how to wreak havoc. And in 2019, I was like, so Arwen, it's 2020 next year and the world really has done fuck all. Can I become an eco-terrorist? 
And she said, no, you have two children now. You can't, but I will allow you to do a year off for advocacy and moving the needle further. Griffith made some political ground in America. Last year, Rewiring America helped create an electrification caucus in the Senate, started mayors for electrification and CEOs for electrification, and worked writing energy policy for President Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan. However, this legislation now appears to have founded, if not died, and Griffith concedes the US is in a dark, tough place politically, with current climate policy not nearly what is necessary to prevent catastrophic global warming. Griffith thinks all hope now rests on Australia. If you're thinking about how do you make the world move faster, someone needs to go first on showing what's possible. Because then you've got a success story that people can be drawn to. Griffith's new book, The Big Switch, published in Australia, lays out his manifesto for rapidly electrifying Australian households. His modelling shows that if aggressive electrification starts now, then by 2025, the numbers flip in favour of electrification. Electrifying homes becomes the cheaper option and creates yearly savings for the average household of more than $1,000 per year, he writes. By 2030, the average Australian household is saving over $5,000 a year. Jobs are created, installing rooftop solar, heat pumps, batteries, new kitchen appliances and vehicle chargers. Export industries benefit from an abundance of cheaper, renewable power. Griffith writes, Around a third of the cost of making steel or aluminium is the energy required to make it. If you have the cheapest energy in the world, you can make the metals that the world needs at the lowest price. Griffith rates the current federal government policy to reduce greenhouse emissions via technology, not taxes, at slightly somewhere between zero and one out of 10. To lean back and say technology, not taxes, is to say the free market will solve it all, he says. The free market demonstrably cannot solve it. And I can illustrate that point very easily. If the machines that exist on the planet today, if all the cars, all the coal plants, all the natural gas plants, all the ovens and stoves and hot water heaters merely live out their natural life and burn fossil fuels while doing it, those emissions alone take us to 1.8 degrees. The only way to hit a 1.5 degree target is to essentially engineer the economy as soon as fucking possible with incentives, mandates, rebates, and subsidies to replace all of those machines with something that does the same service with zero emissions. Griffith has already formed allegiances with some state government MPs, including New South Wales Liberal Treasurer Matt Keane, who has described Griffith as a sounding board and a genius, and Lily D'Ambrosio, the Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change in the Victorian Labor government. 
He hopes his ideas will influence policies in the forthcoming federal election. I don't really give a rat's ass about who wins. I just want to help either or both, he says. In the perfect version of events, you can imagine Labor promoting how they're going to make lower-income households afford this sooner, and you'd imagine the Liberal Party promoting how they'll provide more freedom of choice. That'd be great. Differing about the details of implementation, not about is it the right course. When talking about climate change, Griffith is fond of wartime analogies. To achieve what's required, a heating target of under two degrees, he says the kind of policy response that's needed is essentially a declaration of war. He asks, If the world can manufacture 90 billion bullets a year, why can't it make the 60 billion batteries, just larger than an AA battery, required to run 1 billion EVs? I always think of Churchill's fight them on the beaches speech, he says. The speech given in 1940 by the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill to the House of Commons, warning that large tracts of Europe would fall to the Nazis which really, paraphrased, was roughly, we're fucked. Oh my God, we're fucked. They have all the weapons. But the only way to die with dignity is to go down fighting. Griffith continues, a little bit, that's where we are with climate. I'm going to go down fighting. I'd still think we have a tiny, narrow window where we can limit the damage and have a pretty good outcome. But I think we lose that in the next five years. It's go time right now. That was Electric Monaros and Hotted Up Skateboards, The Genius Who Wants to Electrify Our World by Bronwyn Adcock. The reader was Rochelle Fong. I think the best thing about picking up abandoned junk from the side of the road is you just never know what you could end up with. When I was little, I took a wooden box from my neighbour's lawn. Inside, there were glass bottles that were once used for whiskey and wine, and it was shaped like a treasure chest, making it a perfect home for my dolls. In this last story, we hear from people who've perfected the art of finding treasure on council cleanup days. An abandoned sound system left outside a club. A giant paper elephant two metres long and one metre high. A group of puppets waiting to be liberated. Annual curbside cleanup days are, for some, akin to Christmas, a holy time for upcyclers and waste warriors to forage the streets for a speck of gold. But wastage concerns are seeing councils increasingly moving away from annual collections to online booking services of varying quantities, making it harder for scavengers to bring home a haul. The vast majority of council collections are unable to be reused once disposed, and end up being crushed for landfill. Australians are among the largest per capita waste producers in the globe, trailing behind only the US and Canada. In 2020 to 2021, 
Melbourne's Yarra City Council collected 2,946 tonnes of hard rubbish, of which more than 2,000 tonnes weren't able to be repaired or recycled. The council now offers two hard waste pickups a year, but encourages residents to reduce before you book and rehome or donate unwanted items before leaving them on the street. In the city of Port Phillip, south of the Melbourne CBD, residents are entitled to between four and six hard and green waste collections a year. Mayor Marcus Pear says the council has undertaken an on-demand hard rubbish collection for the past 15 years. It allows us to better respond to the individual needs of our community, he says. The city of Sydney provides a free weekly service for bulky waste, mattresses and green waste, including real or plastic Christmas trees, currently delayed due to COVID-19. While Sydney's Inner West Council is working towards zero waste targets by redirecting resources away from landfill through needs-based collections online, about 82% of household items and furniture it collects ends up in landfill. While most councils are careful to discourage the practice of hard rubbish on environmental and wastage grounds, others threaten fines for scavenging on the street. Durban City Council, in Melbourne's inner north, runs two seasonal hard rubbish collections in spring and winter, but threatens a $300 fine for anyone picking up items. In the city of Port Phillip, the figure is $660, with a recycling recovery rate of 60 to 70% due to separate pre-sorting collections of hard and green waste. But the practice of street scavenging also runs by unwritten rules. Once on the nature strip, fair game. But if it's in the bin, leave it. Street bounty groups that pop up on social media are one-way waste warriors and die-hard collectors have overcome the move from annual hard rubbish days. Annie Lenny is one of the thousands of members of Durban Hard Rubbish Heroes, a Facebook group that promotes the concept of recycle and reuse by keeping pre-loved items out of landfill. Lenny's latest find was a bag of discarded hardcover art books. I love seeing stuff on the side of the road and being like, oh my God, who's getting rid of this? This is perfect, she says. Lenny frequents op shops, but finds something special in saving trash and giving it a whole new life. Sometimes it's fully functioning and working, and some of the time it needs a bit of work or TLC, she says. I've upcycled big furniture pieces, an armchair picked up off the road, a hallway table that just needed a light sanding, refinishing and screwing the legs back on. Apart from chance encounters and social media posts, Lenny follows council pickup times and, when a hard rubbish date is set, goes on day trips with her housemates. I don't understand why it's illegal to pick up from other people's piles, she says. What's the harm? You're saving things from ending up in the trash, and I find it such an achievement. While leaving junk on the curb without a hard rubbish booking is illegal, councils decide individually whether, once disposed of, items are fair game for salvaging. Many don't actively ban it, but encourage residents to recycle or rehome before placing items on the street. Others have local laws prohibiting the practice and threaten fines of a few hundred up to several thousand dollars related for scavenging on safety grounds. But the fines are rarely issued and rely on residents' self-reporting culprits. Sometimes you're walking down the street and it's exactly the thing you need. It appears just like fate. 
Lenny is finishing a furniture course and is used to repurposing items into something new, but wants hard rubbish collecting to be more widely accepted. People don't know how to dispose of things. And a lot of the time it can be confusing and hard to find the right information, she says. Chris Anders has perfected the art of salvaging since he used to set up empty wool packs and frames in the Wimmera for locals to fill with aluminium cans and plastic bottles. Working as a scrap dealer, he'd then sell the cans and transport the five-cent deposit containers to the South Australian border. Anders now runs an antique store in regional Victoria and runs his own YouTube channel, The Ultimate Recycler. He hasn't done a load of general rubbish to the tip in 15 years. I've always liked fixing rather than throwing out, he says. I got involved in recycling before people even had recycling bins. Anders says his love of hard rubbish was hardwired in him by his parents, who grew up in the Great Depression and used to wash plastic bags and dry them over a wood stove to reuse them. That's the culture they grew up in. Waste not, want not, he says. You can discover things you never would have before. That was Australia's Hard Rubbish Heroes Risk Council Fines to Recycle and Rehome Their Curbside Plunder by Caitlin Cassidy. The reader was Shaka Cook. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannan, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan, Ariel Sodario, and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. We'll be back with more stories for you next week. See you then.